if you look at Jurassic Park, there are some scenes that play in a lab. And if you look very, very carefully, you see in the background suddenly pictures made by edge bundles. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. everyone welcome to a new episode of data stories hey moritz hey enrico how's it going all good 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 yeah we're approaching 100 episodes yeah we're so getting close. closer and closer yeah very close it's Mike, crazy, we yeah? have to yeah what, what do we do for 100 maybe we should ask our listeners Big to party. send yeah. suggestions yeah let us know how we should celebrate <laughs> yeah how do you want us to celebrate the 100 episodes <laughs> we have to come up with with something cool <laughs> okay so today we have another very special guest uh, i am really really pleased to have yark van wake on the show so yark is a full professor of visualization from the eindhoven university of technology and he's one of the most interesting figures in visualization research and in visualization in general he's been developing lots of innovative techniques uh, doing lots of solid research and he's been there for a very long time so he has knowledge about how visualization uh, research or visualization in general started and um, um, yeah we are really eager to hear from him um, yeah uh, what what are his ideas about visualization and stories behind some of the amazing um, methods and technologies that he developed um, in the past uh, welcome on the show Yark. thank you Enrico thanks for inviting me <laughs> I'm happy to be a member of the party <laughs> <laughs> great so Yark maybe we can start can you briefly introduce yourself um, I, I know you have a very interesting background uh, so what are what is your background what are your interests and uh, what are you doing in your in your in your lab okay uh well, a very long time ago, I was at high school, doubting what to do. <laughs> it's difficult to make a choice. Many things are interesting. So finally, I decided to study industrial design engineering in uh, Delft here in the Netherlands. And it was a wonderful education where I learned a lot in many different areas. After that, I did a PhD in computer graphics also in, uh, in Delft University. Uh, I was doing ray tracing in the 80s. Raster graphics was bright new and everybody was amazed if you could make a 3D picture. <laughs> After a short stop in industry, I went to Netherlands Energy Research Foundation. There I was developing pre and post processing software, quite typically prototypes for experimental things and research purposes. But also I could do some research myself. And at that time I focused mainly on uh, flow visualization, but also did some work on, for instance, uh, interactive uh, visualization using computational steering. 
98, I came to Eindhoven University of uh, Technology and thought, well, let's switch topic. There I decided to start with uh, Infovis, which was uh, just starting up, sort of. Yeah, it depends <laughs> on <laughs> what you mark as start, but as an academic exercise, the first Infovis conference was in 95, mm -hmm. so for me that's mm -hmm. a kind of a marker. And of course, it was a very fascinating topic and many things to do. Well, and since 98, I've been working in this area, uh, increasingly doing more and more th uh, things in the area of visual analytics, trying to combine automated methods with uh, visualization. And now and then I make some little sidesteps in the direction of uh, mathematical visualization, for instance. Very nice. So one one thing that I would like to one way I would like to start our conversation is um, I want to start on the idea of making cool stuff because <laughs> when I when <laughs> when I look at your work, I mean you are an academic, right? And uh, but not all academics make really cool stuff. And one uh, characteristic of your work is that most of the time when there is a new technique coming from your lab, it's just irresistible. It's it's cool. Right, and uh, I, I I actually found this uh, very nice quote from one of your talks that says, "Develop new methods that are so awesome, cool, impressive, compelling, fascinating, and exciting that the reviewers, colleagues, users are totally convinced just by looking at your work." and some examples. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we can start our conversation by commenting on this, on this um, idea, and maybe then we can dive right into describing some of your methods and technique that you developed in the past. Okay, fine. Yeah, you describe me as an uh, academic, and I must admit that uh, now already for 18, 19 years, I'm uh, back in university. Still, in my heart, I feel like an engineer or a designer. Yeah, my greatest ambition and motivation is simply to make things, to make things that help people or are interesting to look at or where you can learn something from, rather than developing grand big theory on whatever. <laughs> and that drives a lot of my work. And also, that's what I want to convey to my students. Just try to make something that has impact, that is good, etc. The quote you just mentioned came from uh, yeah a talk I gave, and the context there was on evaluation. <laughs> well, of course, we should in the academic world and in visualization in general always be very carefully and never say without proof that things are right or wrong or better or worse and then evaluation uh, is an important part of it um, now and then i have a feeling that it's slightly overemphasized and especially in a young generation they seem to have an idea that if you don't do evaluation then there's no chance you get your paper uh, accepted so i wanted to provoke people just by making clear that, okay, evaluation is an important step, but it's just a step. And if you want to make progress, the 
Uh, most important step is simply that you have to deliver. <laughs> so make sure that <laughs> you put something on the table that is nice and worth looking at. And uh, of course, you can produce crap and then evaluate it and find out it's crap, but that's not really efficient. So try to develop an attitude that you can do the first filtering for the nonsense and the crap yourself. And uh, don't be satisfied until... Yeah, you believe yourself in it. So that is sort of summary. Yeah, yeah. I think th this is also connected to another interesting idea, and I want to. I'm curious to hear what you think about it. I think that on the one hand, especially in visualization research, we 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 try to develop things that are highly functional, and we pretend in one way or another that these things should be useful, right? In, but on the other hand, it seems to me. Again, I was rereading one of your papers today to prepare to prepare for this episode on the value of visualization, and there is a very interesting section on, on the value of art. And um, you seem to suggest, and I hope I'm not wrong, that doing things for the sake of it is also very important because sometimes they actually lead to some breakthroughs, right? Do I read your your thought right there, or? Um. Yeah, now and then you do have to experiment and see where the boundaries are. If you uh, start up a new thing, the initiative can come from different sides. In many, many cases, and a lot of my student projects, for instance, the starting point is simply a data set, a user, someone with interest and has some challenging problem. Now, then you start to work on it. Can we solve it in a trivial way? Well, if we can do that, Fine. then okay, yeah. we're done. Maybe it's uh, more challenging. And then we start to develop something new. But also, um, problems also come from other directions, like, hey, there's some generic problem over there. We don't have yet a user or an application for it, but well, if we could crack this problem, then that might be an interesting step forward. And anyhow, it's just fun to <laughs> crack interesting uh, yeah. puzzles. Um, some of my work was driven by that kind of things. Uh, for instance, in the area of flow visualization, I work a lot on uh, using texture to visualize flow. And yeah, that started really as a sort of technical problem. I had this image of, uh, hey, you can visualize flow in a very natural way using texture. Now, how to do it? Then my idea was, uh, let's take some standard off-the-shelf computer graphics techniques, but found out, hey, that's not such a technique. So I had to develop something uh, myself. Also, yeah, the two things I just mentioned, you have a sort of very practical bottom-up approach, starting from a project. Also, you have the very generic approach, starting with some generic puzzle. Um, in my experience, it's always fascinating to try to switch level all the time. Yeah, If you do something practical, and it's not immediately obvious how to solve it, okay, then make a step back and try to see what the pattern is and try to solve the more generic puzzle uh, without uh, immediate care for the particular um, application domain. 
Um, example in that context is, uh, for instance, the hierarchical edge bundles of uh, Danny Holzer. Uh, then he was uh, doing work in software visualization, and at one point we had a nice data set. And yeah, we wanted to show something more about this. It was about core graphs of complex software from a company and, well, how to see the structure. Now we looked at it and then we found out, hey, the real puzzle here is that you have a hierarchy namely the structure of the software system. And on top of that, you have a network. All the modules on the bottom level of the system are calling each other. So this combination of a network and a hier hierarchy, oh, that's interesting. And if you look at the world through that pattern, you suddenly find it everywhere. For instance, you have people that work in different countries in different continents. So you have a hierarchy. And they're sending email to each other. They are friends of each other. There you have a network and trying to understand this relation between, say, geography and communication is interesting. So Danny and I set out to uh, develop something for that. And in the end of the day, we uh, ended up with the uh, hierarchical edge bundles. So since you mentioned edge bundling, I think that's one of those examples of, of visualization techniques that are just irresistible. You you see it once, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Just looks so good, <laughs> yeah. huh? Yeah. How come nobody thought <laughs> yeah. about it earlier? <laughs> it's just perfect. Maybe for, mm. for if there is anyone who is listening to this and doesn't know what edge bundling is, I suggest you to Google it if you can and take a look. But the idea is basically that if you have a network with edges that connect these networks, uh, the nodes of these networks, then rather than having straight lines, you bundle edges together in a way that makes patterns more visible, right? And um, yeah, it's it's been a huge success and uh, now you see it almost everywhere. So it's a, it's a very interesting, very interesting method. It's one of those things, I think all great ideas in retrospect are obvious and that's one of those cases, right? Yeah, it's also an interesting case of what we just uh, discussed. Uh, if you look at the original papers, uh, there's almost no evaluation, just a <laughs> yeah, number exactly. of example pictures. <laughs> just the technique. Later on, yeah. people have evaluated and, well, <laughs> it's not always very conclusive. And also, even Danny and I have been in situations where we looked at some diagrams and, okay, it looks fascinating, but what's the message uh, that uh, the picture wants to tell us? Mm -hmm. In other cases, it does work. So, okay, there's... Uh, and definitely uh, the pictures look uh, very intriguing and uh, yeah. nice to look at. So sometimes the evaluation is also much more long-term in terms of the proof is in the putting is like, you know, is the technique being applied actually and is it being uh, picked up? Do you have um, experiences with edge bundling? Like it's been around now for 10 years maybe or maybe a bit less? I I'm not sure. What's your feeling? Like how was it adopted like by different tools or do, do you have some use cases for edge bundling in mind that worked really well and others that didn't work so well what's the long-term um your long-term experience with this technique oh I, I was amazed how well it was uh, picked up one of the reasons is practical that people were so friendly to build it in in d3 and that's mm -hmm. always a good that way makes to a big have difference, your stuff uh, 
propagated. Mm-hmm. But also before that, we saw that people used it and re-implemented it uh, themselves. One very nice example was, for instance, that people used it to show connections in brains of monkeys. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was on the cover of, I think it was CACM or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. to our surprise. And our biggest uh, surprise uh, is that if you look at Jurassic Park, there are some <laughs> scenes that play in a lab, and if you look very, very carefully, you see in the background suddenly pictures made by edge bundles. <laughs> oh, <so>. really? <laughs> that's that's the ultimate proof for coolness. So yeah. <laughs> I rest my case. I rest my case. <laughs> uh, we have to find this picture. Yeah, I can yeah. Uh, send it to you. Yeah. Uh, something else is uh, it was also uh, a start of a uh, startup from. Uh, Danny Holt and Jan Bühne, where they initially started from the basic ideas of the edge bundles. Now they have developed the software much more and it's much more versatile. And then you see that the initial idea of the edge bundles, well, there are many other things that are also important if you mm-hmm. want to make uh, all around uh, visualization, visual analytics uh, software. But for some purposes and For instance, uh, insurance fraud, they found out that it uh, can be quite useful to mm-hmm. quickly see patterns and structures and uh, select things and interact with these. Nice. So maybe we can move on to another very famous technique. And uh, so you've been developing, I guess that's what, the late 90s or early 2000s, um, uh, a new version of tree maps, which is actually, I guess, the most popular version of tree maps, which is squarified tree maps. So I think the the story there is that, so tree maps have been developed originally by Ben Schneiderman and um, and his students in the in his lab at Maryland, and I believe the the, the first implementation was used uh, an algorithm based on slice and dice that. Uh, created very long and stretchy uh, rectangles. And then you came up with this new algorithm that actually tries to have um, an aspect ratio for each rectangle that is as close as possible to to a square, right? So can you tell us a little bit of the background story of this technique? Well, uh, we had done uh, some work on uh, tree maps, uh, the cushion tree maps. And then, indeed, we immediately ran into the problem of the standard slice and dice uh, approach. So I thought this would be a nice topic for a master student for his final project to work on that. We found one, uh, Mark Bruls, and I don't want to claim that I developed the algorithm. Actually, it was the second author, my colleague uh, Case Housing, who came up with the final idea how to... Uh, implement it and how to make sure that in a fairly cheap way you can uh, get much better uh, aspect ratios. So I can claim that here in Eindhoven I did put a problem on the table, but the solution uh, was made by others. Meanwhile, if you look at the map of the market of Martin Wattenberg, uh, he also already applied a sort of uh, squarification uh, approach mm. but sort of experimentally we found out that our method was in most cases uh, more effective than his he mm-hmm. used a mm-hmm. sort of top-down approach while we used a bottom-up uh, approach 
And indeed, just like with the Edge Bundles, I'm uh, always happy to see uh, how many people use it. Also, this led to a startup company, Magnaview, and they're based on uh, work we did later on in 2005, Rolf Liegen and Erik Jan van der Linde. We generalized some ideas around tree maps into business graphics in general and found out that, well, you can use similar techniques inside, uh, for instance, standard uh, bar charts, etc., so that the individual items are visible while simultaneously you also see the aggregates. So that was, uh, for me personally, a nice and rewarding story how one idea propagates to the next and finally reaches uh, some audiences. Yeah. And, and you briefly mentioned the cushion tree maps as well. So can, can you describe what this is about? Yeah. If you use a standard tree map, then you see a lot of uh, rectangles. And the layout of the rectangles is driven by the hierarchy. Now, how to show the hierarchy? One approach is to use, for instance, thick and thin lines and show the high level cuts by thick lines and the low levels by thin gray lines. But quickly that becomes very confusing. As I told you just in my CV, basically I'm very much a graphics guy. So at that period in time, I thought, okay, let's put some technique from 3D graphics in there and see how we can boost uh, the appearance. So the idea was to put cushions behind each rectangle and to stack them up hierarchically. Yeah, and then you get very nice, yeah, almost like tortoise-like patterns <laughs> that are quite readable and help you to understand the hierarchy. Uh, I'll tell you a secret story how I came up <laughs> with the idea. It might be surprising. The inspiration was music. Oh. Uh, I don't know if you uh, know how uh, sheet music looks like. In classic sheet music, you want to uh, make phrases clear and subphrases, etc. And there you use uh, arcs to show them. Ah, well, yeah. I looked at those and thought, okay, what would happen if you simply stack those arcs so that you get mm -hmm. a sort of hierarchical arc pattern? And can you generalize that to the 2D and 3D case? Well, turned out to be... Uh, very simple to uh, define and to implement and gave a lot of uh, nice pictures. <laughs> Very nice. And I think actually there is a, there is also a tool that you developed uh, that is based on cushion tree maps, but the main purpose is to actually get an overview of the old set of files that you have in your computer, right? right. Which is an incredibly useful tool. I, I used it a few times and if, if you're, if your hard disk is full, it's just perfect, right? You you load it, you let it run for a few seconds or minutes, and you have an overview of your old file system, right? Right. That was uh, Sequoia View. And uh, yeah, I was uh, delighted by the success I got from many people, feedback that uh, it really saved them from buying a new hard disk. <laughs> Other people said... Uh, I have no idea what the images mean, but they look pretty cool. <laughs> also kind of okay. <laughs> It's hard drive art. And funnily, this is also how Ben Schneiderman came up with the original Tremors, is like to visualize file yeah. systems, right? Yeah. So uh, it seems to be a good use case. Yeah. There's a real use case uh, 
behind that. Uh, one highlight in my hard drive visualization art was that in 2009 I was part of an exhibition in a museum here in the Netherlands on showing data as art. And then I had asked many people to provide a picture of the hard disk and we had a big wall of, uh, I think it was four or five meters high and 10 meters wide showing about uh, more than a hundred uh, hard disks and that wow. gave a very intriguing and interesting pattern. Yeah, I think another interesting aspect of, of this project is that um, it's interesting how when you manage to create a simple tool that targets a very specific need that people have, then adoption just happens, right? And um, I don't know, I think it's interesting that there is not a lot of visualization tools out there that people readily adopt and target one very specific need. So um, I don't know why, why is that? But yeah, I don't know. Sequoia view makes me think about this, this, this gap. Yeah. Finding good use cases is uh, the challenge here, I think. And yeah, interesting that you mentioned that. It's interesting. Yeah. What is used and what's not used. I'm, uh, Always a big fan of uh, faceted search. Yeah. Yeah. Well, faceted search is the technical term, but everybody will recognize it if I describe it. If you go to an arbitrary web shop or you have to select a flight or find a holiday home, you're offered with a list of different choices and you can pick things and you see how many are there and get some statistics about it that guide you through your choice. If you have thousands of items to look at, doesn't work. If you have zero, it also doesn't work. So that's an incredibly effective technique to drill down quickly on large data sets. Um, yeah, on the back of my head, it's hard to beat that. Yeah, there's an, if you look at the problem at a higher level as selection in uh, collections of uh, items with multivariate uh, attributes, um, it seems there's a case for visualization and a lot of uh, people in our field are working on making better methods for multivariate visualization. Still, it's very hard to beat, <laughs> at least as uh, you're just searching for things. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, simple and straightforward method. Mm -hmm. But the hope with visualization is that you see some higher level patterns and not just the individual things, right? I mean... But maybe there's often not so much use for seeing patterns in, in Amazon or <laughs> no, flights. <indeed. laughs> I don't know. No, in many cases, indeed, people, if I look uh, what I'm doing myself, yeah. <laughs> for instance, yeah. suppose that I want to buy a new headset. Okay, I <laughs> just focus yeah. in on what headsets are there and uh, mm -hmm. uh, where to find them. And yeah, of course, I get some ideas about the general spectrum of headsets and yeah. like in many cases it's amazing that you can buy them for uh, five euro but also for a thousand euro <laughs> but for the rest yeah uh, the big picture is not uh, that relevant yeah yeah that comes back to yeah sometimes you just want to achieve something and not develop a big theory of headphones <laughs> you, just want to, you just want to buy one right yeah so are you saying there's maybe not so many like 
cases in everyday life where visualization actually shines like this like this sweet spot of there's an analytical task that's well defined but also open enough that it cannot be automated and so maybe there are not so many like everyday cases for visual analytics yeah, very good question i could go in different directions one of them could be like it's an issue with uh visualization literacy if mm -hmm. people see something that's more complex like a histogram say mm -hmm. a scatterplot scary yeah. scary yeah they already uh stop with that mm -hmm. uh i was intrigued by once there was a keynote from someone from new york times and he said that uh, a scatterplot that was the absolute upper limit of what his readers could swallow yeah well, in the academic community, of course, uh, it's just a starting point. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, maybe that can change in the future. Yeah. Nice use case is uh, stock markets. Mm -hmm. when I think of it, and of course, uh, this map of the market. Uh, Martin Waterberg very early showed uh, how effective uh, it can be. If it's about communication, then people don't have much time and want to get a clear message. So the visualization necessarily also has to be compact and simple and easy to understand. If you have to work first on trying to decode what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of things we are doing is just uh, yeah, quite uh, shallow. Also in my daily work, important ingredient is about just a number of things yeah if there are three or five things that you have to deal with yeah, you don't need any visualization at all if there are hundreds of things for instance if you're chairing a conference and want to see the big picture or if there are patterns or is everybody doing his job <laughs> then you find out that hey it would be nice to have some better visualization some better interaction here also, when you are dealing with hundreds of students, then things are getting more critical. Mm -hmm. So do you build your own tools for managing conferences and students? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Could be a good idea, uh, though. <laughs> yeah, I was, in January, I was giving a course for uh, uh, students. And then I was in the center of uh, doing the Eurofis uh, assignments to reviewers mm -hmm. and uh, well I showed the students uh, a snapshot on the screen and said hey this is my daily work now so uh, <laughs> challenge for you to uh, find a better solution <laughs> it's a yeah that's a case where visualization could be for mm -hmm. instance quite useful the matching problem eh? you have a set of uh, items you have the set of workers and you must assign items to workers so papers to reviewers or members of your uh, committee. And of course, there are many nasty constraints that some people are expert in this or they don't want to have more than that, etc., etc. So that's a case where I really think ah, I would like to have some more powerful visualization, some more powerful uh, interaction here. Uh, so for daily uses, there are not that many cases for high-powered uh, visualization, but maybe for many 
you know, sort routine work in companies where you have to have an overview of many cases simultaneously, there are still uh, many opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jörg, uh, you talking about um, a few visualizing a few data points, you reminded me another part of the talk that you gave a few years back and we mentioned at the beginning, which is I, I found really funny, but also very, very inspiring. So you, you've been uh, presenting um, a data set that comes from basically your family. It's you, your wife and your two children. Yep. And it's four data points. And I believe something like three or four different attributes, including, I guess, age, sex and, and something else. I don't remember exactly. And, and what, what I think it was very interesting. And then you start building different charts with these four data points and, and three or four attributes. And you go through a very long list, right? It's like first a bar chart, then a timeline, then um, Vorono, uh, not Voronoi, um, a set visualization, and then a hierarchical visualization. You go through a very long list, right? And I think that that's what was very a very good example of uh, one of the major challenges for visualization, right? Even with such a small set of data points and fields, the design space is is huge, right? I mean, it's not huge, but it's large, right? And um, I believe that's one of the biggest challenges of visualization because you have to have a way to figure out how to uh, decide, right, which direction to go because the design space is too big. Thank you. Yeah, I also liked uh, those slides. They came in uh, for the talk at a very late moment. <laughs> I gave an initial version of a talk and my wife said, no, this part where I described different methods is too boring. So I thought, okay, <laughs> let's make it somewhat more interesting. <laughs> but it's also something I try to push to my students that if you get the data, and people tell you it's multivariate data, you don't have to immediately believe that. And you can look at it via different lenses and then get very different results. And that could be useful to uh, visualize things in a very different ways. Um, having said that, it's always also dangerous that you can quickly produce a lot of nonsense or irrelevant stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm... There's a thin line here. I hope you can, I, and I'm sure you can recognize this. Um, on the on one hand, as researchers, as designers, we have to be creative and explore the limits and to find very intriguing and hopefully impactful way to show things in a very surprising new approach. On the other hand, a lot of our standard mundane methods, of course, work very, very well. Say a histogram works quite well to show a distribution and time graph mm -hmm. works perfectly to show a time varying signal, etc., etc. So a current state of the visualization field in the real world is somewhat interesting in that respect. A lot of people are now discovering visualization and they think that if you make a weird picture in a crappy way, think uh, 3D histograms or 3D pie charts or much worse than that, uh, you're doing visualization and by some magical way you get a lot of insight. Well, of course, we know that it doesn't work like that. So 
in a lot of work my students and I are doing these days, we more and more step back to very simple visualizations. And it's getting more and more rare that we find some yeah, really new visualization uh, pattern or visualization case. Mm -hmm. In interaction, uh, there are still interesting opportunities how you combine standard visualizations in uh, different ways. But um, yeah, we are sort of... Yeah. No, maybe I'm just getting too old <laughs> and we're running out of fantasy. <laughs> Next generation has to take over to show I'm very wrong. And, uh, yeah. No, but I think it's it's a general trend that we see much less new techniques or like new tricks or new diagram types maybe over the last few years, but much more work in how do we apply what we know and how do we figure out what to do in a given situation, right? Yep, and well... These days when I give a course or a lecture on visualization in general, I try to hit the break. This week I gave a masterclass for people from industry. And okay, I gave them that message and I showed them, for instance, ways to do show trees. And there's a very, very nice website, uh, treefish.org, mm -hmm. where they, at the moment, I think they show something like 295 different ways to visualize a tree. <laughs> and I showed it. And my intention was to show, okay, there's a lot of things that are doubtful and don't think that everything works, etc. But later on, I got feedback from some people from the audience. Yeah, it's interesting. And there's so many ways to show a tree and I'll explore that. And okay, then I thought, oh, whatever I've done. <laughs> uh, Uh, take a site like uh, visualcomplexity.org. It's yeah, totally fascinating. And I spent hours and hours looking at the cases and the examples and all the creativity. But yeah, okay. <laughs> Is this meaningful? Does it work? Is it effective for real-world cases? Often uh, yeah, you can put some question marks there. Yeah. But I have to say, I, that's what I noticed even in my work, that... Even though coming up with new visualization techniques is, has become harder, integrating them in meaningful ways or even modifying them in meaningful ways is not an easy, easy task at all. And often is it, it really matters a lot. So I think we, we, we can make a lot of progress there. Yeah, I fully agree. And uh, in many cases, it's simply a lot of work to get it right. Uh, Yeah, I've done quite some projects, for instance, on visualization of uh, event logs for different machines like uh, MRI scanners from uh, Philips, but also wafer steppers from ASML. And each time, yeah, you really have to dive into the problems of uh, particular audience and different aspects are important. And you have to give subtle cues that emphasize Uh, what's going on. Uh, not much of it really spectacular and things like that were not published. But, yeah, it's not trivial and uh, requires care to do it in an uh, effective way. And uh, it would be good if we had some, yeah, 
more guidelines how to, yeah how to do visualization <laughs> yeah and then not the simple case of okay we have one table and how to do it but we have a lot of messy data now how to configure different elements and what rules to follow if we uh, uh, put everything next to each other or on top of each other what to give uh, priority uh, yeah it mm -hmm. would be good if our community could uh, give us some more design patterns or design uh, rules for that. Yeah, it's interesting. We just discussed this last yeah, week uh, exactly. also on the podcast <laughs> is that there is this gap, like there is no real professional training in how to become a good, let's say, data visualization problem solver like that you would you know get a briefing on a problem and then figure out a way to develop a tool that solves that problem in a visual way and there, maybe you might have let's say you might have a design education and develop yourself that sense of working with data and probably yourself also develop uh, some knowledge in statistics and data mining and then you can go in this direction or you're like an engineer technician type and you sort of learn the design jobs on the side but there's no real professional training for being a data visualization uh, designer right no yeah indeed the uh, occupation of uh, data science is getting more and more popular mm -hmm. friends here in eindhoven together with our colleagues from uh, other university we are starting up a lot of new courses and programs bachelor master on uh, data science And I'm very happy that visualization is uh, recognized as an important uh, ingredient there mm -hmm. for communication. Uh, so I also try to push the message a bit that also it can be very useful for exploration. Uh, but yeah, the problem you just described that you require all those different disciplines. Uh, yeah, that holds for each aspect in this uh, very large uh, data science field yeah mm -hmm. uh, so yeah i don't know uh, maybe in the future we can develop tools that are very very easy to use and uh, configure so that people can quickly define suitable interfaces mm -hmm. and of course a lot of uh, commercial tools are trying hard to go into uh, that direction But if you really want to do something special, focused with, yeah, where you have to go to the level that you have to write uh, D3 code, okay, things are getting uh, tough. One thing that I would like to to talk about also is more some of your work that is more on the artistic side. And uh, I think some time ago you had um, you told me you had an exhibition. Uh, on your, um, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Myraidal projections. <laughs> uh, they are beautiful, beautiful maps. And uh, I guess if I understand correctly, the goal there is to create maps that have as little distortion as possible, right? And the outcome of your projection is something that looks extremely engaging and beautiful. So can you Can you describe, uh, <laughs> if it's possible, through words, what, what these projections are about? That's actually uh, indeed one of my favorite projects. Typically a hobby project that I did <laughs> uh, without students and my Christmas vacations, etc. Uh, 
when I was a little boy, I was confused that when you make a map of the world, there was a problem at all. Because my very naive idea was if you take a map of your city, say Eindhoven, and take a map of the next area besides it, and go on forever, <laughs> then you have a very nice, perfect map of the whole world. Good point, <laughs> actually. <laughs> yeah. There is something wrong with this reasoning. And Okay. Uh, what's wrong here is that uh, if you want to do that, then sooner or later you have to accept cuts. So yeah. you can rephrase the problem as, uh, okay, let's apply cuts to the to a sphere say in orange and next try to flatten it out my original idea was okay if you do some nice fractal pattern then you get very <laughs> fascinating interesting <laughs> images but somewhat that was your first idea was to apply fractal <laughs> patterns <laughs> Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah, just uh, take a triangle and divide it in smaller triangles and etc. Yeah, etc. Yeah. Et et and then sure. to cut it. Sure. And uh, the pictures are still in the paper. But there was something I didn't take into account that uh, if you do that, then very quickly your cuts get very thin. So you don't see the whole stupid fractal pattern anymore. Hmm. So I went to a next level. Okay. If this doesn't give you a very interesting result, are there other ways that you could try to cut? For instance, what would happen if you cut along coastlines and then you can decide try to get the continents together or maybe you want to get the oceans together and what does it look like? And you can cut in a more or less random way or you can cut very structured in a grid like pattern so there's mm -hmm. a whole family of ways you can cut up the earth and uh, flatten it out so i was happily experimenting with that uh, wrote a paper about it got rejected for uh, ieee fis <laughs> i'm still very <laughs> proud of that it got scores of uh, one two four five <laughs> a nice controversial uh, paper <laughs> Uh, so I was uh, disappointed and it was lacking an evaluation part <laughs> I think that was <laughs> yeah okay and <laughs> the negative reviewer said this is not uh, nonsense and uh, no use for this <laughs> okay yeah. uh, well I was disappointed and Jason Dykes uh, uh, saved me. I showed him what I did and he said, ah, our community, the cartographic community will love it and sent it to there. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did and there I was uh, very happily accepted and I was very proud of that, even prouder than in my own community, the hardcore <laughs> visualization uh, guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I was quite proud that in a very old classic, very well studied topic like uh, projection of uh, the earth I still could uh, bring in some new uh, contribution uh, yeah and also the you know, the pictures and also the animations look quite cool I must uh, admit it's yeah, a fascinating topic uh, to yeah. work on 
So I suggest our listeners to take a look. So just go. Uh, we we will we will link the the page in our show notes. There are lots of interesting pictures there, and um, so I'm just curious about. Did you? It just occurred to me this idea that what you could do is to actually try to do a physical version where you apply the cuts <laughs> directly on a <laughs> on a sphere, right? Uh, did, <laughs> did you try that? No, <laughs> so far I did not. And uh, yeah, it's high on my to-do list to do something with 3D printing. Uh, yeah, at some point. Yeah. yeah, for uh, a lot of my uh, medical visualization stuff, also almost bags to be used for 3D printing. People sometimes uh, picked it up and did uh, 3D printing themselves, but I think there are. Uh, interesting uh, opportunities mm -hmm. also uh yeah people from paris uh yvonne jansen uh, did her phd at uh, jean daniel Fiquet's group they're doing very fascinating work in making physical objects uh, showing 3d data yeah. and uh, mm -hmm. i find it very intriguing yeah exactly. we also had an episode on that so where they even yeah show the the 3D bar charts and so on. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. that could work quite well. Yeah. And I think it's a nice example, again, of what we talked about earlier is that sometimes you just have a fascinating idea or you start with this basic premise, like what if we define this as a cutting problem and then you just see where that takes you and you produce a lot of the different variations and different um, outcomes and explore that space and then somebody exactly. will pick it up and say like, hey, this could be useful for this type of map. So... I think it's a great example of this like fascination driven <laughs> approach basically. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to write research proposals <laughs> oh, on this because yeah. by definition in advance you don't know for yeah. sure where you end up and where your exploration will lead you. But, mm -hmm. okay. but you you had a nice exhibition on on this project, right? Was that in Eindhoven? I don't remember exactly. Uh, no, it was uh, in a city called uh, Breda. At that time, uh, there was a graphic design museum. It has changed its name uh, since then, but uh, uh, together with three other people, we had an uh, exhibition and I could show uh, a number of my things. The uh, director of the museum was sort of fascinated by the fact that academics accidentally sort of made art well <laughs> the more artist people did research <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was a very intriguing uh, event yeah. it was fun to do also. yeah very nice i think we need to wrap up soon i think one last thing that i would like to ask you that is also somewhat connected to this uh, last project i think one aspect that characterizes your work is that sometimes your your work is characterized by 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 a lot of math and um and it's beautiful math and um one thing that surprises me is that in visualization it's not very common to see a lot of math describing describing the work that that we do or even inspiring the work hmm. that we do and uh, so I was curious to hear from you, what do you think is the value of math in visualization? Because it looks to me it's a very unique characteristic of your work. And uh, I don't know many other people are actually doing that. So what is the value of math in this? Yeah, it depends on what kind of problems you attack. 
if there are strong geometric components like all the uh, projection stuff and also mathematical visualization stuff my zoom pen paper you can phrase it very precisely as a mathematical problem and then the mathematics gives you nicely the solution then it's very practical and uh, effective um, I think that in many real-world problems you have problems like usability workflow tasks etc and these are very very hard to fit into math yes <laughs> without becoming silly or minimalistic mm. or whatever and there's the yeah. it's always intriguing that if you go from physics to sociology for instance then physics is of course very very precise sophisticated highly highly mathematical uh, while soci sociology uh, uh, is still work in progress <laughs> uh, I'm not an expert in that so I won't make any claims I know something about it but that's much harder to capture and the simple explanation for that is that the phenomena you study are much much more complex yeah if you mm -hmm. the interaction between two elementary particles is much easier to capture in clean math than interaction between two humans yeah, that's also one of the challenges and the charms of our uh, field that um, yeah, try to make things precise and make a step further. But yeah, uh, I hope that one day we can fit a lot of things in clean models that you can describe with very clean math. But uh, I think there's still a lot of room for... Uh, designers and developers and uh, experimentation mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and uh, if in my uh, paper uh, value visualization i put up some simplified diagram of visualization in general and i was happy that i could describe things with just a few differential equations <laughs> but it was almost a sort of a joke yeah this is how the math looks like but now let's try to formulate what it means where i was cheating all over the place was that the objects that were being manipulated were things like knowledge or specification or data yeah very very fuzzy complex things that don't fit into something that's very easy to describe or compact or that we know how to describe so that was sort of a provocation uh, okay field let's if we want to go in the direction of uh, using more math and try to become a sort of physics of uh, data understanding this is the challenge we have to face yeah that, I think that's that's at the heart of the whole problem of visualization is the messy world and the the uh, how we can wrap it into like an elegant uh, representation, right? And so yeah. th there will be enough to do, <laughs> I think, in this realm for a long time. Yeah, certainly. But also, it's of course not special for visualization. If you go for arbitrary design problems, but also. Yeah arbitrary problems in general and yeah. just whenever uh, humans are involved it becomes a big mess 
Of course. <laughs> I think that's a great way to end this uh, episode. Thanks so much for joining us. This was fascinating. And uh, yeah, our listeners, please check out all the amazing work Jack has done. There's uh, material for many hours of studying the amazing world of uh, math and visualization and <laughs> engineering and uh, many other things. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, yeah, we're really curious to see what you're up next. Many thanks. I enjoyed. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, here are a few ways you can support the show and get in touch with us. First, we have a page on Patreon where you can contribute an amount of your choosing per episode. As you can imagine, we have some costs for running the show and we would love to make it a community-driven project. You can find the page at patreon.com slash datastories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. Just search us in iTunes store or follow the link in our website. And we also want to give you some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories. But we also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash datastoriespodcast. And we also have a newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox, go to our homepage, Data Stories, and look for the link that you find in the footer. And finally, you can also chat directly with us and other listeners using Slack. Again, you can find a button to sign up at the bottom of our page. And we do love to get in touch with our listeners. So if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know amazing people you want us to invite or projects you want us to talk about, let us know. That's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories.